Let's read God's word together. And they said to him, they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the amazing um, reality that you have revealed not only yourself, but even your will and your instructions to us through your word, Lord. This is a living, breathing book. It is alive, it is active, Lord, and it penetrates hearts. And I ask this morning that as we sit under your word, that, that the, the words that come out of my mouth would truly reflect your truth, that you would be seen in your glory and that we would be strengthened, convicted, challenged, instructed because your truth, Lord, is so powerful. May we humble, be, be humble, Lord, before you and, Lord, may we be teachable. And, Lord, I just ask that you would use me as your messenger. Help me to be faithful to you, we ask in your name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Um, did you pay your taxes this year? Just so you know, April 17th was due day, and if you need to file an extension, it probably would be a good idea. Um, I, my, my life and journey when it comes to taxes um, is probably somewhat like yours. Maybe you can relate to this. Um, it started out, first of all, with the, uh, the EZ form, right? You know what I'm talking about? That was when I was in, in college. Um, I had no clue about taxes, and my dad helped me out and received a refund of $9. Woohoo! And as a college student, that was just great, right? Um, from the EZ form, it moved to the Oh No form. Um, this is the form that I filled out once I got married, um, and uh, no one had told me what it was like to actually uh, to do that. Actually, not marriage, that was actually my first year of ministry. Uh, the, the Ono form became the this can't be true form when we got married because there were certain things that came to be uh, because of marriage and being in ministry. And then some of you um, might be aware of the I'm in a heap of trouble form. Um, that's the one that says audit on top of it. And... Um, if you've ever had anything like that, um, it's not a good thing. But this is, this is life in a world, in a country, where taxes are part of the system. And of course, in our country, that is true. Um, think about this. We, are, we pay taxes pretty much on everything. Not everything, but pretty much on everything. Our income is taxed. Our purchases are taxed. Our property is taxed. Even when we die, sometimes our savings are taxed, and sometimes our taxes are even taxed. Um, and when foreigners come to visit our country, one of the things that they're surprised with when they go into the store is the price says $10, and they go to the register, and they hand them $10, and they say, no, it's $10 and, you know, 90-something cents. They're like, oh, what? it says $10. Yeah, that's because we pay taxes here, you know. Well, we don't build it into the price, right? And, and, and if that isn't enough, we actually pay other people to do our taxes, right? How crazy is that? And probably you spent a lot of time, personal time, extra time, gathering information, sorting through your stuff because it was time for you to pay taxes. Now, I, I don't think that there is anyone on the planet that just gets up in the morning and says, today is going to be great, I get to pay taxes again. I just don't think that thought goes through anyone's mind. I think we would rather not pay taxes than pay taxes. But if we're honest, we can so easily get bitter, we can get angry, we can get downright mean because of the taxes that we have to pay. 
And of course, the history of our country is marked by those who struggled with the weight of taxation to the point that they would do the unconscionable. They would throw 46 tons of tea into Boston Harbor. You see, now I'm of British descent. And I think to myself, what a waste of tea. I mean, that's just like wonderful stuff thrown away. Now, see, let me change the scenario a little bit. Let me just imagine with you, if here in California, in the Bay Area, we only had coffee that came in on the boat. And there it is in the boat, and because people get upset because of taxation, they go to the boats and they toss all the coffee, 46 tons of coffee, into the bay. You'd be saying to yourself, I can't go on anymore, right? I mean, what am I going to do? This is not going to be a good day. It's a waste of coffee. But the only good news is that the fish are really biting now. That's the, that's the good news, right? They're biting a latte. No, it's a joke, right? Um, I had to get that in there, you know? Now, this question of paying taxes has been around for a long time. It's not a, it's not a new topic. And Jesus here enters into the war zone of the temple and we find him just facing that very question, dealing with that very question um, from this delegation that comes from the Sanhedrin. Should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? In this, in this text, uh, we will see Jesus in his glory. He is unfazed by the attempts of those who want him killed. But we'll also hear his counsel and instructions in answer to the question that is posed. And so this morning, I want to begin by presenting to you this proposition that Jesus here is counseling his followers on the importance of rendering to Caesar what he is due. Now, remember the audience of Mark. They are in Rome. So they're, they're like right under the umbrella of Rome and Rome's leadership. So this question, I'm sure, was something that they were even wrestling with and probably was far more a reality than those who were living in Israel. So here they are receiving this information, this gospel, and it includes this story. This is going to have an impact on them. But let's just recap a little bit as to what's been going on. This is the the temple scene um, in Mark's gospel, and it covers a few chapters. What we've seen so far is that Jesus had entered the temple the previous day, and that day he took it upon himself to communicate God's displeasure with the condition of the temple. He took action, first of all, by driving out those who were buying and selling. He overturned the tables of the money changers and those who were were selling pigeons. And he was stopping people that just had... had, had, uh, turned the temple simply into a kind of a causeway where they're bringing their stuff into the city and just having a lack of respect for the temple. But not only did he take action, he took time to teach. And he was teaching them and saying, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you've made it a den of robbers. Now that was, that was a, an incredible statement, a powerful statement, a scathing statement, and the religious leadership, those who are in charge of the temple, they're not happy campers at all. Jesus leaves the uh, the temple, leaves Jerusalem, comes back the next day, and when he returns, he encounters the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees, and they challenge him about his authority to do the things that he did the day before. And so Jesus uses this parable of the wicked tenants, if you remember, And he made it clear that he was, in that parable, the son of the father, meaning he is the son of God coming into the temple with full authority to speak. And what he says there is not only just a parable, but it's also prophetic because he says in that parable, and they took him outside the city or outside the vineyard and they killed him. In just a few days, this is exactly what the religious leaders are going to do with Jesus. So in rejecting the son, Jesus says, the stone, the cornerstone, they initiate him being the cornerstone. They initiate this beginning of this new era, this new uh, path, this new formation that Jesus is going to establish, and that is the church. Now that's kind of like the backdrop. 
And of course, the religious leaders, they are not fond of Jesus at all. Through Mark's gospel, we've been told that they oppose him, they want to get rid of him, they want to arrest him, and they want to kill him. Right? They are after him, and we're certainly going to find that out in this text. Now, I want you also to think about just the, the structure of what's going on in the, the next few pa- uh, passages, the one we're in today and the next couple Because what we see here is warfare breaking out in the temple. It's the leadership, the religious leadership of Israel versus the coming Messiah. There's a tension going on, and it's happening right there in the heart of Jerusalem in the temple. But I want you to notice that that when they challenged Jesus about authority, it wasn't sufficient. It didn't do the job for the religious leaders. And so now they apparently have gone up into a back room somewhere and they've created some strategy. And their strategy is we are going to pepper Jesus with some questions. And we're going to send different people to him to ask different questions. And we're going to try and catch him and, and, and uh, trick him and, and catch him by him saying something that will incriminate him. And either the people won't like him or the leadership won't like him. And so if you just look in your, in your Bibles, notice um, verse 13, we have, first of all, the, the Pharisees and the Herodians approaching Jesus. And that's the passage we're going to look at today. But then after that, in verse 18, we have the Sadducees approaching Jesus with the question about marriage and resurrection. And then we have a scribe who approaches Jesus in verse 28, asking a question about the greatest commandment. So here we have these these people coming. They're all representatives of this larger delegation, this larger group, I should say, that would be the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders, also known as the Sanhedrin. And they're coming now strategically and tactically to catch Jesus in in what he says, to trap him in his talk. This is a battle of words, and it's a battle of wits. And Jesus is up to the challenge. These religious leaders really have no idea who they are dealing with. They're going to be coming kind of with some arrogance, some, some, some kind of you know, pizzazz, saying, all right, we're going to catch him here with this one, but they have no idea. Well, let's look at this first one, and we find it in our text, verses 13 through 17. Here what we're going to find is the subject of paying taxes to Caesar. It is front, it is central. So let's notice, first of all, what I'm calling an attempted entrapment, an attempted entrapment. Notice verse 13, and they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. So these are the religious, uh, these are the the part of the religious delegation that come. And it says they sent. Now, as I mentioned, somewhere in the back room, somewhere they came up with this plan. They are coming as representatives of this leadership. They're coming with a plan they're coming with a purpose. They're not just like genuinely interested in the answer to the question. You get that. They're coming because they're trying to tri- trip Jesus up. But they're coming with the full authority and the backing of that Sanhedrin. And notice there are two groups of people. There's the Pharisees. And these Pharisees are the, they are the, uh, the religious conservatives. They are the ones that are constantly eager to prevent Judaism from slipping into uh, Hellenism. Uh, They want to prevent this cultural slide toward Greco-Roman occupation of the land. And so it's it's a lay movement that kind of rose up and about 6,000 strong, according to Josephus, which at that time was a significant amount of people. And and so they're one part of the group. Then you have also the Herodians. Now, who are the Herodians? Well, they're not the conservatives. They're the liberals, they're the liberal religious people. And they're the ones that you know, basically said to Rome, you know what, we're going to work with you. We're going we're to support Herod. We're going to support Rome. We're going to do the things that, that, that you want to do. And so uh, in normal circumstances, these two groups would be at odds with each other. They would be fighting with each other. But now because they have a common enemy in Jesus, they are uniting together because he has for them become a problem. He is challenging the status quo. He is coming, doing things, and saying things that undermine their very um, uh, habits and, and practices that are going on in the temple and even in Jerusalem. So now together they come to Jesus with a question. But remember, the purpose is to entrap him. 
And so we've seen the delegation. Now I want you to notice the flattery. Verse 14, and they came and said to him, teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you're not swayed about appearances, but truly teach the way of God. I just, just kind of hear that with, with honey lips, right? Oh, you're so wonderful. Oh, you're so great. We understand how important you are. We understand. And you know what? What they're saying is actually true. Let's just go through this again. They're saying that he is a man who both teaches and is motivated by truth. And that is very true. They'd heard him speak, and whenever he did speak, Jesus backed up what he was saying with their own scriptures. He was motivated, and he spoke the truth. And he was also then a man of integrity. They've been able to find him saying anything. Or he couldn't, haven't been able to find saying anything that was untruthful or behave in a manner that Jesus could not support with the scriptures. What he said was rooted in the scriptures and what he said was consistent. But what the readers will soon understand, what we will soon understand, is that these representatives are coming to Jesus with a forked tongue. These are honeyed lips, but with a, a fork, with a, with a trap in mind. And this word trap is the same word that is used to describe Satan testing Jesus in the temptation. So you say this is the same purpose, is to catch him. And literally it means to take by hunting. They are hunting Jesus down to trap him. That's the purpose here. Okay? That's what they're seeking to do. And they're coming with confidence and arrogance. And listen, there's a reason why. Because Jesus had asked a question, and his question had to do with John the Baptist. And his question was a dilemma for them. And as a result, they could only say, we don't know. It was basically a non-answer to the question that Jesus asked them. So now they're coming back and they're saying, well, you know, you're going to play that game. We're going to give you a dilemma that doesn't have a right answer, and we're going to catch you. So they come to Jesus looking to beat him at his own game. And they come with this clever question. Is it lawful now to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? So again, this was not some offhanded question in the sense it was not, it was the kind of question that the Jews had been discussing and had been asking. I mean, no nation likes to be under the subjugation of another conqueror, but to have to pay taxes or even tribute, is insulting for a people. Would you not agree? And so anytime they're paying taxes, it was a reminder of their defeated status. And so to be sure, almost every Jew in, in Israel hated the very thought of paying taxes to Caesar. Now even Rome understood this. And that's why Rome hired Jews like Matthew, who ends up being a disciple, to be a tax collector so that they wouldn't have to deal firsthand with the people. And they would allow someone like Matthew to actually increase the tax so that he could get his cut and he could pay Rome what they wanted and he would keep for himself. So it became a, a kind of a lucrative position. And it's no wonder then that the Jews viewed tax collectors as the worst of sinners because of how they turned against their people and now were representing Rome. And it's not just that they were representing Rome, they were representing Rome and they were making money off of the people. So they, they just considered them to, to be totally disloyal, all right? And that's why we have this idea, in, even in scriptures, that tax collectors and sinners is a euphemism for the worst kind of people. But here's the trap. If Jesus says it's okay to pay taxes, to Caesar, the people will turn against him. If Jesus says it's not okay pay, to pay taxes to Caesar, then the religious leaders are going to say, aha, we're going to go tell the Roman authorities what you said. You are going against Rome, and therefore we're going to hand you over, and you're going to be punished. So it was somewhat of a dilemma. And what we have here, friends, is an example of a conflict going on between religion and politics. Right? You have the, the Pharisees and the Herodians, 
asking questions about our, their relationship then with Rome and, and what should be done in that relationship. Now, the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter um, in Scripture teach us that God created two institutions in the world, the church and the state. And they have separate responsibilities or separate uh, missions to perform. The church is charged with the proclamation of the word, we would say, and the ministering of the sacraments. In other words, the carrying out of that ministry of the word in the lives of the people. The state, however, has the responsibility to protect, to wage war, to keep the peace. Those are the different responsibilities. But often there, is, there are two extremes, and this is what has happened through history, and I want to share with you maybe two extremes to kind of paint a picture and help us think through this. Extreme number one would be the church ends up being over the state. And this is what we have in, in the history of, our, of the world, in the history of the church, where uh, the Catholic church, the universal church at that point in time, um, basically was in control of the state. If there was an emperor or some kind of ruler, the church would be the ones that were influencing and putting that person on the throne. And it would be the church that would dictate what would happen, and those things would be carried out by those particular rulers. In other words, the church was over the state. And whatever the church wanted, then the governments would carry out because they didn't want to offend the church because if you offended the church, the church then could take you and they could do damage, okay? And friends, Jesus never envisioned that his followers would, would become a church militant, and a church that was all-powerful on this earth. That's not, that's not the purpose of the church. We're not supposed to march into territories with a militancy and say, we're going we're gonna to build the church here. We're gonna, if you're not with us, then we're going to kill you, or we're going to put you in subjection. And, and you know, that, that's, that's not how God has called the church to function at all. right? The second one is a little different. And um, it would be when the, the state is over the church. And I just want to use this one as an example because it's one maybe you don't know about, um, but I think it kind of paints the picture here. And it's where the state then is over the church, where the ideologies, in this case, of the, the Nazi state church, which was called German Christians. You can look it up on the Internet. Um, but they basically promoted and supported the ideology of the state. So you have this, this, this Nazism and you had the state then organized church that was there to pump out this Nazi ideology. All right? But it, yet it was considered to be a church. I'm going to read for you Alfred Rosenberg, who's one of the, the Nazism's um, leading proponents, and what he says in his book, um, Mythos in the 19th Century. This is what he argued The religion of Jesus doubtless was a gospel of love, but a Germanic religious movement which wants to become a people's church, will have to declare that the love of our fellow men must be subordinated to the idea of national honor. In other words, the state comes first, and the state dictates the ideals that are, are, are promoted and pushed out through the church. The ideals of the state override the ideals of Christ. Now, friends, these are two extremes but you can see how these two extremes can be so horribly abusive, right? And can cause great damage. And so there's a need for us then to recognize that, that, that there should be some, some distinction, some separation between those two um, institutions because they are institutions established by God, all right? But there certainly can be abuse if one or the other is in control of one or the other. Now, certainly, some qualifications. Certainly, we need godly Christian men and women serving in government. Agreed? This is not saying if you're a Christian, stay out of government. Right? Certainly, Christians should be thankful for the country that they live in and have a right-minded form of patriotism that reflects the gospel. You go to many countries around the world, friends, and there isn't a love for country like there is typically in the United States. Now, I'll be honest with you, California is definitely waning in that. I came from the Midwest, you know, a number of years ago, and, you know, they, people were very, very patriotic, and not kind of in some kind of a, a political way. They just, they just love their country. 
Uh, California is kind of like, well, if we do that, it's kind of being political. It's like, well, this is your country. Wave the flag, you know, just love, love. And it's not saying it's a replacement of, of God or, or the church. It's just saying this is the country in which I live. And if you've ever taken time to be out of the country, especially in, in places that are more third world, you, you get back into the borders of the United States, and you're like, ah, oh, I feel safe. I feel comfortable because I know how things work. I know that there's, a, there's an ethic here that typically is true and all that kind of stuff. There's something wonderful about the country in which you live. And that's, that would be true if, if you lived in another country. You'd want to be patriotic about that country too. Now, one can still love God and country without falling into the trap of these two extremes. Now, Jesus, having endured the attempted entrapment, turns the tables on his opponents and exposes their hypocrisy. Let's read verses 15 um, and following through 17. But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a Daenerys and let me look at it. And they brought one and he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. The first thing I want you to notice here is that Jesus, he knows. He knows exactly what's going on, right? And it's not just that he, he, he is fully aware of what's going on and he's fully aware of their hypocrisy. He lets them know that. He's knowing their hypocrisy and he says, why are you putting me to the test? He's not saying that because they told him that we're putting you to the test. He knows what it is they're trying to do. Okay, so this is a declaration from a sovereign God who's fully aware of their intentions, right? It's kind of like, you know, he recognizes that their question is kind of like that question, have you stopped beating your wife? And there's no right answer to that except for that's an answer that I am not going to answer because of the purpose of that question. Because if you say, well, yeah, I've stopped beating my wife, that means that you once did beat your wife, right? And you understand, it's either a yes or a no answer. You're damned if you say yes, you're damned if you say no. That's what they're trying to get at. That's what they're trying to accomplish. They're trying to catch Jesus in his words, and he knows it. And so Jesus then brings an illustration. He says, bring me a Daenerys, and let me look at it. Now, a Daenerys um, was basically a small silver Roman coin worth about a day's wage for a common laborer. It was also the amount that was required for taxation for a year, okay? So there's something significant about that. And um, there, there, was a, there was a resentment about these taxes. If you actually look at Acts chapter five, verse 37, you don't have to turn there, um, but Judas the Galilean led a revolt when this was actually put in place. It was squished, but um, there was still this attitude that was present in that time. So they, they brought one to Jesus. Now, I want you to notice that he, 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 first of all, asked them, you know, whose image is on here. But before we even get to that, the fact that they even have a denarius shows their hypocrisy. Let me explain it in a couple of ways. Because they had no qualms about doing business with Caesar. They, they actually, he asked for a denarius and they pull one out. And, and on this denarius um, is basically the stuff that represents Rome. Now the Pharisees, they, they, you know, they really did not want to do anything that was supporting Rome. Of course the Herodians... They, they were all for it because they wanted that. The zealots wanted absolutely nothing to do with it. The Pharisees were reluctant in the paying of the taxes. But here we have these religious leaders who are clearly doing business using the denarius themselves and have no problem doing it. Secondly, they had no qualms about bringing in an image of Caesar, which was considered an idol, into the temple. And just wrap your head around that. So on one side of this coin was the image of the emperor Tiberius at that particular point in time. It would have said this, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. And the, the name Augustus means son of God. So literally it would say, 
Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine, son of God. Just think through that. And on the other side, there was a picture of a female uh, seated on a throne, wearing a crown and holding an inverted spear in her right hand and an olive branch branch in her left and the words high priest. Everything about this coin represented idolatry and the worship of the emperor. You get that? And here they are, the religious leaders, asking this question. Should we pay Caesar the tax or not? And Jesus says, well, do you have a denarii? (laughs) Oh, sure, right here. First of all, why do you have one? Secondly, why do you have one in the temple? You're bringing idols into the temple. I mean, that's, that's, he, he, he's exposing their hypocrisy in even asking the question. And so he says, then whose image is on the coin? To which they answered, Caesar's. So now as these exposed religious hypocrites looked at the coin, Jesus gives the answer to their question. We all know this. Render the Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. So what is Jesus getting at here? What Jesus points out by use of this illustration is that the coin is owned by the one on, uh, um, whose image is on the coin. Or to put it differently, because Caesar's image is on the coin, the coin belongs to Caesar. And if it's Caesar's, then give it to Caesar. So, in this case, it was a tax. Now, friends, that was just kind of like, that's not the answer they're expecting. He is just dealing very directly with it. He's showing their hypocrisy by even having a Daenerys, but he's answering the question, hey, this has his face on it, his image on it, and if someone has their image on it, then you need to give it to them because it belongs to them. And then he goes on in this little statement and just notice what he says because the shock and the logic of what Jesus is saying is pretty powerful to these guys. He's answered the tricky question here um, that the Pharisees and the Herodians had asked as well as exposing their hypocrisy. What is it unexpected though is what he says next. He says, and render to, to God the things that are God's. This was not, again, what they were expecting at all. So what is it that Jesus has in mind with the statement? Maybe better to translate it this way. Just listen as I, as I read it just a little differently. Pay back to Caesar the things that belong to Caesar and pay back to God the things that belong to God. Caesar may be imprinted on a coin, so do your civic duty and pay your taxes. I mean, if you pull out a, a dollar bill or a coin or something like that, it's going to say something about the United States of America. It belongs to the country. It belongs to the government in that sense. But he's saying what you should be more concerned about is the image of God that is imprinted on your heart. Okay? And if his image is imprinted on your heart, he owns you, and you owe him your allegiance. I mean, just think where Jesus is going with this. I mean, here they are, asking a question, trying to trap Jesus, and what does Jesus end up doing? He ends up not only exposing their hypocrisy, but also seeing this as an opportunity to preach once again the gospel the importance of God and what he has done in creating mankind. Listen to Genesis 126. It says, this is the God, this is the Godhead speaking, and then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Jeremiah 38, 33. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Now, since we're created in the image of God and bear his name as children of God, we owe him our whole selves. That's what he's saying to these guys. You are descendants of Abraham. You are part of my covenant people. You should be more concerned about what God has done in imprinting himself on your heart than asking this really dumb question about whether you should pay taxes to Caesar or not. Now, I want you to notice then the third point, and that is this. Notice how they responded. It says here, 
and they marveled at him. Now, this is not, um, this is not from Disney. It's not the latest movie that's coming out. Um, this is the word marveled, which in Mark's gospel is a key word. It's also translated amazed. It's also translated astonished. Now, remember, um, Mark has been, has been walking through showing who Jesus is, and many times at the end of an encounter, we find the people or the religious people or the disciples responding by saying, and they marveled, and they were amazed, and they were astonished, right? You remember that? This is being used again. Why? Because it's showing us something. Notice, notice the flow of the text. Notice how it begins by these Pharisees and the Herodians coming in bold confidence to seek to entrap Jesus, but it ends here with them marveling at him. See how he's just turned things around? This, this word group is used over 12 times in Mark's gospel. Now, what does it mean to marvel at him or to be amazed at him? Well, in previous passages, it's a word that describes the people's amazement at the significance of what Jesus has done or what he has said. And so maybe just three ways to kind of reflect on Mark's gospel and how he uses it. First of all, it's an amazement concerning Jesus' miraculous power, uh, uh, the healing of a blind man or a withered hand, a casting out of a demon, the calming of a storm. This is his miraculous power on display, and it sure causes people to be amazed. Secondly, uh, this amazement has to do with his authoritative teaching. When Jesus comes and he starts handling the scriptures in ways that they're like, wow, we've not heard this before. He makes sense of what, uh, what he is he's saying. What's, what's been obscure is now made clear. He's, he, we're amazed at the authority by which he speaks. And then there's the third one. That would be simply be this divine wisdom. And that's what we're, really, we're seeing in this text here is they're not, so, not amazed necessarily because of a, of a miracle or the authoritative teaching. It's more his divine wisdom. He's able to handle this tricky question with ease. And they, I mean, it, just, it shows you when they were coming, they were coming expecting to stump him. But rather than stump him, Jesus takes them to school. That's what's going on. That's the kind of God that we're serving here. That's the kind of Jesus that we have here in the Gospels. I mean, we're talking here about the religious elite. These were the educated ones. These were the, the ones who, who had the ability to argue and, and, and debate. These are the ones that, that had the, the, the knowledge. This is where knowledge typically was developed was in the context of the religious system. What they should be thinking at this moment is, who is this man in front of us who claims to be the son of God? They should be thinking, is there any truth to the things that he's been saying? Or maybe we should pay a little more attention. Now there's the story in a nutshell, and we're gonna spend the rest of our time now kind of fleshing this out. And, have a, a number of things to say because I think there's a number of things that are important for us as we consider this statement that Jesus makes which has really impacted the fabric of society for about 2,000 years. Um, this, this statement, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Um, it is universally acclaimed that these words are the single most influential political statement ever made in the history of the world. Making a distinction here between the things that are Caesar's and the things that are God's. And certainly, our Western civilization has this as its foundation, among a number of other things, but certainly this idea, and it comes from a text like this. So as we reflect on this encounter, I'd like for us to consider the impact of the words of Jesus um, for us here in 2018. We're called to live as citizens of his kingdom and to be ruled by attitudes and principles that are rooted in the gospel and rooted in the character of Christ. Now, some of the things I'm going to say this morning that flow out of here, you may not like, but you can still love me. 
right? And some of them are hard because we're talking about taxes, religion, and politics, right? The, many of the conversations that you should not have a conversation with people about. So we're going to have that conversation, all right? And it's going to hopefully cause you to think a little bit and um, probably say, yeah, this is exactly what we need to be doing. Um, but there may be some things that you struggle with, all right? So, number one, when it comes to rendering to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, there's three, three things that I just really want to draw out for us, and there's some multiple things under those three things, but I want us, first of all, to think about this. The, the, first of all, the state is a valid institution established by God. Now, listen to the words of Richard Halverson, a former chaplain of the United States Senate. Um, and I put it up on the screen so you could read it along with me. He says, to be sure, men will abuse and misuse the institution of the state just as men, because of sin, have abused and misused every other institution in history, including the church of Jesus Christ. But this does not mean that the institution is bad or that it should be forsaken. It simply means that men are sinners and rebels in God's world, and this is the way they behave with good institutions. As a matter of fact, it is because of this very sin that there must be a human government to maintain order in history until the final and ultimate rule of Jesus Christ is established. Human government is better than anarchy, and the Christian must recognize the divine right of the state. Just think through that. Now, in case you're, you want to argue with Halverson's words, just remember what Jesus is telling the Pharisees and the Herodians. He's saying, you must render to Caesar even though he is a man that thinks he is God. Right? Not the perfect president of the United States. Fortunately, well, I don't know. I can't see in the hearts of the presidents, but I don't know that we've had that actually think that they are God. They might think that they're man's gift right, to the United States and to the world, but they don't think that they're God. Caesar did. And Jesus said, render to him what he's due. And the Apostle Paul reminds us in Romans 13, in verses 1 and 2, the, this truth. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted um, by God. Therefore, Whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. So he's emphasizing this, past, this passage that the, the actual institution of the state is valid and has God's blessing. In other words, he is behind the organization of institutions of the state like that. That doesn't mean that they're perfect. That doesn't mean that they're sinless, but that is part of God's purpose and plan. And we need to recognize that. Secondly, um, I want to put it this way. Although the state is a valid institution established by God, there are times when Christians must resist the authority of the state. See, now you're getting into dangerous territory, Pastor Rod. You be careful here. You might get arrested for this. No, we're just fleshing out what Scripture says, and we're just thinking it through together. Number one, for example... When the state is asking you to violate a command of God, that is a time when you have to say, no, I can't do it. And by resisting, I do not mean take up arms. I'm just saying, no, I'm sorry, we're not going to do that. In Acts chapter 4 and 5, the authorities arrested the disciples for preaching and ordered them not to teach in the name of Jesus. And after they were released, what did they do? They went and preached and taught in the name of Jesus, and they were arrested again. And when they were put up before the authorities, this is what they had to say. We must obey God rather than men. Now, that was in relation to a gospel-centered missional purpose, the preaching of the word. This is not about, well, my fence is here, and I'm not going to move it because I'm not going to move it. That's not talking about that. God's put institutions in place to make those decisions about things that are 
civil. We're talking here about the preaching of the word. And when the government says you can no longer do that, um, he, they have violated a command of God. So this would include things like having and reading your Bible in both public and private. This would include things like teaching and training your children in the fear of God. This would include things like identifying and speaking freely about the sin that is in the world and calling it what God calls it. And friends, this would include things like what happened this past week that the California state passed about, you know, not having in-print books that speak to the coming out of people who are LGBTQ. Listen, when, when the state says you can no longer speak to things that God clearly says we must speak to, guess what we're going to do here? I just say this, take care of my wife. If that's what it comes to, and I'm not, I'm not going to be obnoxious about it. I'm going to be gracious. We're going to, we're going to work through Scripture, and we're just going to say this is what it says, and these are the implications to where we're living. And if it happens to be on a subject that, that relates to whatever society says or the state says, you can't talk on that, guess what we're going to do? We're going to talk, and we're going to be careful, but we're going to say what Scripture says. Because what? We serve God rather than man. So secondly, when we're asked to do an immoral act, these are areas where a Christian can be pressured to compromise. Things like to tell lies in the course of politics. I mean, can you imagine? I could not imagine being a Christian in politics today. Because if you are a Christian in politics, you are going to have to speak the truth when you're asked a question. You know, do you know X, Y, Z? In your mind, you're like, well, I do know, but if I say this, I've just blown being, well, Yeah. This is true, yeah. That's just what happened. Okay, we're not going to vote for you. Well, I mean, I, I mean, <laughs> you're going to have to be a person who has integrity that speaks the truth, right? It's pressure to be unethical in business dealings or pressure to, to do something inappropriate or against a particular ethnic or people, or ethnicity or people group or to be, to be lenient on or look the other way when a favor... Uh, a favored individual or favored group violates the law, but it is to the benefit of those who are in leadership. I mean, how, how does someone in the, in the police force, when they're told, you can't arrest these people, although they're breaking the law, and you arrested someone else who was breaking the law yesterday for the exact same thing, but you're not allowed to arrest them now, because somehow this is a political thing and it's a political person that favors whoever's in power. You've got some ethical things going on there. I'm just saying this, this world is, is becoming more complex with these issues. Or when obedience to the government would violate one's conscience. Now there are many things that would come under this heading. Pressure to participate in some kind of lewd activity. Now I just imagine someone who's working for the, the, the San Francisco um, you know, government, and they're being told, oh, by the way, you need to be here for the pride parade. And you're a believer. Set aside the, 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 the LGBTQ side of it. I'm just talking here about, I don't want to be involved in all the lewdness that's going on during that time. Why would I want to be a part of that? And why would I be forced then to do something that violates my conscience? Or working in institutions that perform abortions or participating or in, in, in a, maybe in a war that you think is an unethical war. Our country has typically granted this, this you know, conscientious objector for different purposes. And I know it can be abused. But it's possible that there can be a, a war that's going on that your conscience will not allow for you to participate. Okay, so there are times when Christians must resist the authority of the state, but we've got to think very, very carefully about what it is and that it is a, a personal um, conviction born out of Scripture, not just some institutional idea that is being pressed down by some organization. This is truly what you see Scripture telling you to do because some of these things, for, for some people, may, hey, I can handle this, I can do this, 
And we're not going to run around be, being conscientious police, right? These are, you know where you work. You know the things that you struggle with. Maybe, maybe the authorities are asking you to do, and you've got to say either I can or I can't, and you've got to live with the consequences. Now, with all that, there's four attitudes that I think are really, really important that flow out of Scripture as it relates to rendering to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. All right? Attitude number one, obedience. We are to be obedient as law-abiding citizens in every way. Now, this is assuming, then, that there's no kind of reality of the need to resist, right? So we're, we're known, people of Gateway, Christians who are true Christians in the Bay Area. We want to be known as law-abiding citizens. That should be our reputation. That's what people should be saying about us. We stop at red lights. I'm serious about that. I was, I was on Foothill Boulevard just the other day at A Street, waiting, waiting to go. Is that a red light? And it turns green. And, and three more cars come whizzing by. And I'm thinking to myself, these guys are, they're, they're, they, they're, they're so selfish to get through this light they don't care about the potential effect that it's going to have on the lives of others. That's why there is a light that is red. That's why there's a light that is green. That's why we have a yellow light. Okay? Now, I know, there's, I, know I hate no man's land. You know what I'm talking about? That no man's land, it's like, all right, I'm going to make it. I'm not going to make it. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about it is red, but I'm going to press on anyway. That is selfish. That is sinful. Why? Because there's something in my heart that says it's more important for me to get through that than for me to care about other people and the laws of the land. Think through that. Okay. Um, we pay our taxes. Hopefully. We separate our garbage into recycle green waste and garbage even if there's only one truck that comes and throws it all in the back. Which, which is, is how it was when I was in Michigan. That's how it was. They said, oh, we want you to divide it here. And I, I went out there and I watched. And <laughs> they just threw it all in the same place. And it wasn't like three different compartments. It was just one, right? And they were just wanting us to get into the habit of it, right? That was, right? But we, we, we do these things. Why? I know it's a pain. I know it's frustrating. Even for me, it's like, ugh. No. I, I figured out how to do it, Right? I, I kind of know what goes into what. I get confused when I go out places and it's like green and there's a blue one and there's a red. I look at the pictures and I'm confused. And, you know, you just give up. And what you end up doing is you look inside to see if what you have is to say, ah, oh, yeah, that's right, that's fine. right. But the point is, do, do, you, do, you want to, do you want to be a kind of citizen that is known for keeping the law or do you want to be a kind of citizen that says, ah, psh, I'm a Christian, I don't have to do what they say. Because that, that's what is communicated when you just don't pay attention to those things. Um, we go through security checks without having an attitude. As much as it is an inconvenience, but the government has instituted at airports security checks for a reason. And by the way, I'm thankful for that. As much as it's a pain, I told you about the, the bacon story, right? I think I did. Did I tell you about the bacon story? Yeah. When we were going to, to Kiev, um, we were standing in line to get through security, and we had breakfast, and I, I had bacon and eggs and stuff like that. And then standing in line, the dog comes who's sniffing for drugs and stuff like that. And he, he isolates me, and they finally pull me aside, and, you know, I have all these people around me, and, they're, and they end up giving me a full search. And, and they say, was there anyone else traveling with you? And I say, well, yeah, there was that, that guy right over there, J.D., and there's Yulia. And they had all their stuff searched. And as we're walking away, I realized what had happened. Is I'd, I'd eaten bacon with my hands. Because you don't eat bacon with a fork, right? You eat it with your hands. And I must have been talking. And I just kind of just touched my, my, the side of my, my jeans. And I tell you what, you can train a dog all you want. But <laughs> when it comes to bacon, <laughs> all right? But we go through security. It was a hassle. But I'm thankful for that because there might be another time it's not bacon. Something worse than that, right? Respect. Even if the police officer pulls you over and is disrespectful to you, 
you treat him with respect or her with respect. Someone else's bad behavior does not give you an excuse to respond in kind. Right? Even if you don't like a politician, whether it's local or whether it's the person who's sitting in the White House, you have no place to speak about them in a disrespectful manner. You respect the office. And let me say it frankly, whether it's President Obama or whether it's our current president, it doesn't matter. You speak about that person, you speak about them with respect. You may not like their positions, whether it's, again, local people. You may not like the the local governments that are here, but you still speak about them with with respect. Why? Because that's what believers do. Because we are citizens of a different kingdom. It rules us. Participation. Listen, part of the, the privilege is that we are the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God has been planted in the kingdom of man. God's placed us here in this world to have an impact. And one of the ways we can do that is we can participate in the process. So you have an opportunity to vote. You don't say, well, God's sovereign. He's going to carry it all through. Yeah, he carries out his will through what? Through people, through his believers who are exercising a vote. And I don't mean you have to stomp in, I'm voting for this thing. I just mean just, just go and do your duty. I know there's a number of you that went up to the state because you, you're homeschooling, and they had some bill on, 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 on the docket up there, and there's a whole bunch of you up there, and they end up saying, you know, we're not even going to think about it. Why? Because there's so many people that were there. Good for you. You're participating in the process. And we get to do that. In our country, we get to do that. In many countries, you don't get to do that. Now, I think God has placed us here. Let's, have an, let's use that, that opportunity to, to vote, as well as to be a juror. What kind of people do you want to be sitting on your jury when you're really not guilty, but people are making it look like you are? You want people who care, who can think, and who want to be a part of the process, not people who just want to get out of there as fast as they can because they, you know, they want to go play golf. And they're going to say, ah, guilty, because they're not thinking it through. No, God's giving you an opportunity. I know, I know we, we get that every year in the mail. It's like, yo, you're like, no. You know, and you kind of, you know, kick the can down, down the path. Go do it. You actually find that you might actually enjoy it, um, and you might meet some people you've never met before um, and, and find out that uh, you have an opportunity to minister there, right? So obedience, respect, participation, prayer. Listen to Paul's encouragement to younger Timothy in his first letter. First Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 2 says this. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high position, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. I mean, he's just summarizing what we've just been talking about here. And we pray for those who are in leadership. Pagans or not, sinners Yes, we know they're sinners, but blatant sinners in opposing viewpoints, all that kind of stuff. Guess what? We, we are called to pray and pray for them. That's rendering to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Now, let's consider this idea of rendering then to God the things that are God's. Because to be honest with you, the whole point of this encounter was to get to this statement. <laughs> I know we spent more time on the other statement, but this is the point. This is what we need to see here. This is the punchline. Jesus has carefully and cleverly taken this difficult question and turned it into a confrontation uh, uh, for the Pharisees and for the Herodians who should be more concerned about God than a self-made wannabe God in Caesar. One of my pastoral heroes, not because I knew him, but because I, I, I really appreciate his insight and his wisdom and his example is uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. Um, just about a year before he died in 1979, he preached on this text, one of his last sermons. And so I'm gonna, I like to borrow his conclusions here from his sermon on this particular text. And I, it's very simple, but I think it's helpful. And he would say this, first of all, and this is what we need to know. First of all, the image that is in you is God's image, not the state's. 
Now friends, just, just I want you to contemplate and I want you to think about the fact that God has imprinted in you his image. That is the point. That is what he wants these, these believers in Rome to understand that his image in them is far more important than Caesar's image on a coin. And if God has imprinted his image in you, that should, that should embolden you. That should help you recognize that you are, a, then if you're converted now, a citizen of his kingdom. The, the kingdom of God, as I mentioned, is then placed inside the kingdom of man. You've, God has placed you with his seal of the Holy Spirit in that kingdom, in the kingdom of man, so that you can actually do his work for his glory. And you and I have hope. And so we don't need to be so consumed about whether we have the identity of the state or the identity of the world around us. What is more important is that we have the identity of Christ. So we think and we speak and we behave like faithful citizens of his kingdom. Secondly, what is the worst thing that Caesar can do? Here's what he said. He can take away your life, but God is almighty, and he can cast your soul into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. You fear Caesar, you're fearing the wrong person. The person you need to fear is God. The consequences before Caesar is or death, the consequences before God is eternal damnation in a place called hell. My friends, that, that's just a very sobering thought. And, and I wonder whether or not we actually contemplate that. Yes, we who are believers have, have been rescued from that, that end place of, of, of hell. We have now the prospect and the hope and the certainty of heaven. But do we contemplate as we ought, the power of this everlasting God. We think that the rulers of this world are so strong and so powerful. God just goes flick to them. They are nothing to him. They are completely and totally in his hand. And he turns them, he raises them, he deposes them as he wills for his own purposes. And so we look to God and we say, to the taxes, and we say, we want to worship you. You've imprinted yourself in our heart. We are citizens of your kingdom, so we're going to do things your way. And what you say is, eh, if Caesar's imprint is on the coin, pay your taxes. But God says a lot more about what it means to be a citizen of his kingdom. Right? And the final thing is very, very practical that he says, and I think this is helpful. Remember paying taxes will bring you good things. It will bring you good roads, unless you live in California. <laughs> it will bring you fire service. It will bring you police force. It will provide you with a trained military force ready to defend both you and your country. It will bring you help when there is a state of emergency because of a tsunami or an earthquake or some fire or some tidal wave. Friends, governments are there for lots of different reasons, and so we need to be thankful. Sometimes we take those things for granted until maybe we are the beneficiaries of those services that the government provides, okay? But hear this. Although that's what government provides, God can give you eternal life. <laughs> Let me say it again. God can give you eternal life. And if we take that lightly, we do not comprehend the gospel. Yes, we're thankful for these things the government provides, but what's more important is what God provides. He provides a son. He provides a means of reconciliation. It is the very death of his son on a cross, the shedding of blood, the, the reception of wrath on his shoulders rather than ours. That is the means by which we have this new life in Christ. And we have this eternal life. The state can't give that to you. 
might attempt to. You know, the, the, the Catholic Church historically has in different places, especially in South America, marched in and said, you're going to convert. And if you don't, you're either going to be a slave or you're, you're done. And that's true of other religions too. The state has no way of doing that. The church can't do that. Only God can do that. Only he has the authority to do that. Now, I want you to go back to the proposition. And I want you to make a change. This is purposeful. Because this is really about this. Jesus is counseling his followers on the importance of rendering to God what he is to. So yes, we need to think about taxes. Yes, we need to think about the relationship between the church and the state and all that kind of stuff. But far more important than that is we need to recognize that God has created us. He stamped his image on us. And he is... He is coming to us through his gospel saying, look at my son. Look at what he's done. How will you respond? Will you listen? Will you respond? You see, he is due our faith, our belief in the gospel. He is due our allegiance. He is due our obedience. And he's due our worship. Let me challenge you, let me encourage you to think through these things this week. Because you are, if you're, if you're a child of God, a citizen of his kingdom, and he's calling you to live in accordance to that. In the context where there may be different governments. And to live for his glory. Even though we're living in a sinful world where paganism is still rampant, he's called us to live with a certain attitude in a certain way for his glory. Lord, help us today to consider the impact, Lord, of this passage. Lord, how, how incredible your son is on display in this passage. Not only is your son Jesus one who performed miracles and one who taught with authority, but Lord, he is one who speaks with divine wisdom. He is, as John would say, the word, full of grace and truth. We are humble, Lord, to even be welcomed into your family, to be drawn to you, to be, uh, to be recipients of your grace. We don't deserve it. And as we think through, through how even Paul just speaks to the Roman church about this gospel and he brings Jews and, and Gentiles together and he finishes up in chapter 11 saying, Lord, all of this has been done for your glory. And Lord, you want us today to see more importantly, that you are our great God and Savior, that you have imprinted yourself into our very being, and you want us, and you want our allegiance. Lord, help us to do business with you and to, to determine, Lord, where we are with that. Maybe we're not followers of you. Maybe we, uh, we've been rejecting, we've been stiff-arming any attempt that you want to, to come and to change us. And again, maybe, Lord, we are, we are your children, but we have been so caught up with the things of this world that we've forgotten, to some degree, our allegiance to you. Help us, Lord, to this morning, in a fresh way, be reconciled to the reality that you are a great God and Savior. A hunger and desire to live for you, to serve you, we ask in your precious holy name. Amen.